Uh, welcome to this uh, afternoon session, which is, as you, uh, I hope, know, just an open uh, conversation uh, opportunity for all of you to ask questions and uh, make comments uh, with and to uh, the poets. Uh, let me introduce them, first of all. Uh, let me also remind you to shut off anything that goes off. Um, so that we don't, uh, don't get interrupted that way. On my far right is Peter Fallon, whom many of you, I hope, heard read last night. Uh, next to me here is C.D. Wright, who will be reading tonight at 7 o'clock, so I hope we'll see uh, all of you back for that. My immediate left is David Lehman, who will be lecturing for us tomorrow afternoon at this hour. And at the far end is Donald Hall, who will be reading tomorrow night. So you now know the whole schedule from uh, now until the end. I just want to say a couple of very brief things to get us going. <clears throat> C.D. Wright says, I, Arkansas. She was born there. Now she also wrote islands. And here today we have poets who Connecticut and New Hampshire and who New York and Ireland. They've come to read to us from their worlds. But this hour, they're here to answer our questions, to talk with us about poetry. It's your time to ask questions and to get answers, and so we can begin. We'll pass this mic around, whoever needs uh, to have it. Who has a first question? Okay, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Be brave. There's also the possibility that they may have questions. Well, that's true. That's true. Does the first question come from the panel? Uh, here's, a, here's a question. Luke, Luke. Uh, oh yeah, sure. Why don't you do that? a lot of uh, continuity between uh, writing poetry and, and teaching poetry because uh, for, for one thing when I teach the writing of poetry I, I favor giving assignments and exercises and prompts and, uh, and then I do them myself and often these involve writing in a particular form uh, sonnet, sistina, abecedarius or some other uh, poetic form uh, so I, I see no, no contradiction in those two, two tasks. Uh, on the other hand, I, uh, I spent many, of, um, many years working in journalism and not teaching uh, as a way of making uh, a living. And I, I think that's all, all to the good because it uh, involved one, me, in the, in the world um, in a much more uh, direct way. Uh, 
And uh, I try to discourage the poets in the MFA program who study with me from uh, letting inertia guide them and uh, deciding that they will embark on a, a go from being students in a writing program to being teachers, going from one end of the room to the other without an intervening period of experience of the world and all of its uh, possibilities. Um, and it seems to me that young writers need to apply as much imagination to the question of how to earn a living as they put into uh, writing. Um, instead of just assuming that your options are limited, I, I think on the contrary, with a, a degree, um, a bachelor's degree and an MFA, you, you can do virtually anything. And it's well worth figuring out what, what that is and in inventing yourself in the process. That's a, a form of creation, just as writing a poem is. So that's my answer. And now C.D. Wright will give her answer. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> Well, it certainly isn't inevitable that you're going to teach if you want to write, and if you want to write poetry, and it wasn't even for my generation. It's much less so now. Um, I have a lot of confidence that poets will continue to keep coming back up that drain, though, and find a way to support their habit. Um, I haven't found it incompatible to teach, it, although I've always questioned it, just as I've always questioned the whole enterprise of writing poetry. Um, but over time, I've come to think that both were rather honorable uh, undertakings and worth a lifelong inquiry and also merit questioning constantly. Um, but for the most part, I would say that they, they're not just compatible, but they do provide some stimulus uh, one to the other. The students um, bring me the news, which I'm no longer as uh, avid about keeping up, so they're a good filter for me, um, and, um, and they're just uh, they're a good sounding board. They help me concentrate my own ideas because I can teach courses in which I have an interest and in have an interest in learning something. So I think it's really brought more focus than it has distracted from it. There are times when it's a bit of a, a pull the other way, of course, but that would be the same with anything, I think. Um, this question started with Philip uh, Larkin, a man who is renowned for sometimes being a bit cantankerous. There is a story of uh, a young Scottish poet, Douglas Dunn, uh, who we were talking just a little while ago, moving to Hull in the north of England, where Larkin was the uh, librarian. And Douglas Dunn was wondering, how do I break the ice of the conversation with this man? So, I hear there's a lot of uh, student writing here. And uh, Martin said, yes, and I'm hoping you'll have to step it out. But there was, when I was starting off in, in the, the north of Ireland, uh, another somewhat contemporary man was a man called John Hewitt, a fine regional New South Wales poet. And I remember being with him once, and he said, um, so you're interested in Anything from this? David's talking about the early 
I wanted to uh, write poems the rest of my life when I was 14. And I thought, at that age, I thought, how would I support myself? Oh, I'd write a novel every year or something. <laughs> By the time I was in my 20s, I thought that, uh, maybe I should teach. But that was a time when uh, oh, uh, Robert Ben Warren and uh, Alan Tate uh, had been poet professors. But it wasn't like it is today. And uh, I. Um, because I was a poet by, by the University of Michigan, and uh, well, I taught literature. And I loved teaching because I learned so much. I mean, this was especially true for 10 years or so. Uh, I would assign a book I loved, I thought I knew very well, and then kids would give me a question, and I would never have thought of it, and I didn't even know the answer. And so I learned so much about literature by trying to teach it. I didn't teach writing all that much. Uh, toward the end, I taught writing, uh, poetry for writing uh, once, uh, once a year. And that was usually fun, but not always. I did get to admit the people by looking at their work. Uh, then. In 1975, though, I, I went the way David had done so much, uh, I quit my tenure, which Terrifying, and moved to the farm in New Hampshire that I uh, loved so much and loved as a kid, my grandparents and great-grandparents, with uh, my wife Jane Kenyon, who adored solitude and that countryside, and I made a living. Jane didn't make much of the first. Uh, I made a living by journalism, by uh, writing articles for magazines, by writing about baseball, uh, all sorts of uh, subjects. Anything I'd ever been interested in could provide a subject. But I also wrote children's books and textbooks and short stories and collections of all of them. And what I, I loved teaching, but I did not miss it so much because what I loved most was writing all day long. And this gave me the opportunity to, to do it finally and to sort of perfect a solitude, uh, a double solitude, which was uh, conducive and I, I felt triumphant that uh, I no longer had to teach, much as I had enjoyed teaching. Mm -hmm. Is there a sound, man? Or an... <laughs> there are a lot of unsounds. Yeah, I, 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 was, I was about to ask. <laughs> Is that going to be better, do you think? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Uh, maybe uh, another question, and I'll repeat the question if I can hear you uh, rather than sending this 
rather than sending this out into the uh, into the audience. Yeah. Kim. The question is: uh, Two of the two of the panelists uh, run small presses in addition to writing poetry, and the question is uh, whether those two activities are complementary, uh, complementary or not. Am I the second person running a press? Because <laughs> I no longer run a press, but I, I did run a press for twenty-five years. Um, it, um, I wouldn't call it commerce. Uh, or anything, <laughs> anything even in the vicinity of commerce. But um, it was an activity I enjoyed, um, and I certainly found it related, and it kept me interested. And I also found that I was a better, felt myself as a better book editor than I would have been as a, an anthologist or a, a magazine editor, because I really need the context of a body of work to, to really key in. And, uh, and so I enjoyed reading manuscripts, and I enjoyed most of the other sort of things around putting a book together. Um, eventually, there were too many claims on my attention to you know, continue that. So recently, our press was taken over by um, a former student who's now a PhD student in Denver. And uh, um, usually, a, a small press in the US will not survive its you know, original editor. Um, but she wanted some of the backlist, so she's continuing it. I guess I'm the other one. It's hard for me to be sitting beside the recovering Small press can have 
assembly, like a bigger mass in another country. Um, but within the operation that we run, I, I think that there's an, an aspect of it that's like state and another aspect that's like church. And the editing and design of this kind of church that we try to subscribe and the state of the management and the business of other people of the better. And as is so often the case, the state Well, uh, neither Don nor I runs a small press, but both of us have done a great deal of editing, uh, editing books and uh, anthologies. And, uh, and so for the record, let it be noted that we, we do that. <laughs> Don, do you want to you know, David, you probably know, does the annual <coughs> best, best American Poems. I mean, I've got it right, right? <laughs> and uh, this is uh, a wonderful way to stay in touch. He's invented. He's done other anthologies as well. I am, especially when I was younger, I adored to uh, uh, edit magazines and uh, a couple of anthologies. Uh, in order to impose my taste on other people. <laughs> That's when I thought I had taste back then. But uh, uh, I was very involved in uh, certain uh, directions of poetry in the 50s and 60s and so on. And uh, I, I felt uh, passionate about editing. And this was part of uh, being, a, being a poet. It was part of being in uh, a time of poetry generation of poets and so on. That, that was important. And I went on um, editing other magazines until uh, we were about you know, 1989. I stopped. And this will be a good thing I stopped. But I'm glad I did it when I did it. And uh, too bad I never tried to make my own magazine. I'll give it what else I could for other magazines and anthologies. There was a question right over here. The question is, uh, what is the daily grind? <laughs> Who wants to? Well, I, uh, I love writing, and I, I, I like writing every day. Uh, and in fact, for five years as an experiment, I wrote a poem a day. I, I didn't set out to do it for five years. I just set out to do it for a, a while. Robert Bly had, uh, had been doing this and uh, gave a reading of the poems he wrote on a daily basis that culminated in a book called Morning Poems. This was back in 96 that he was writing the stuff book came out a year later. And I thought, oh, uh, I can do this uh, too. And he explained how he would write his poems first thing in the day while he was still in, in bed and, uh, and therefore in touch with the dream world. And I tried to do that exactly, but uh, all that happened is that uh, certain old songs would be in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> 
about the lyrics of uh, somewhere beyond the sea. <laughs> but um, after a, a month of uh, not not doing it very well, I I, I suddenly really enjoyed writing a, a poem every day. It would be at different times. It would be in um, sometimes on on the computer directly, and sometimes in uh, a notebook. I always carry a notebook with me wherever I I go, so I could write a poem. You know, during a traffic jam on the <laughs> FDR Drive. Um, for example. Um, no, I, I really love the physical act of writing, and I, I, I love writing a great deal. I know that some poets cultivate the idea of uh, that poetry is agony, um, and you know they're entitled to that uh, um, experience, uh, but I don't wish it on myself. I'm glad that, I, that it's a joyful experience. Um, and I try to do as much of it as I can. Uh, there's also a, a theory that says that you, you, you should be more sparing of your work and shouldn't show anything but your best work to other people. Um, and I can understand the rationale of that, but I, I think that, and there are perhaps dangers in being too prolific, um, because you won't always be writing at, at, your, at your best. And, uh, someone sees a work of yours that's not as, as good as your best, they may uh, conclude that that's uh, your level. But I, I don't think you can worry about this too much. Uh, William Stafford, who wrote a poem a day, was asked, well, what does he do if he writes a poem that doesn't meet his usual standards? And he said, well, then I just lower my standards. <laughs> that's a good attitude, I think. John writes poetry full time. So. Well, yeah, it's a subject I love to talk about. Mm -hmm. just, I pray I don't talk too long, but, so. but uh, I, can't, I you know, once tried to write a poem a day, <coughs> and I did for a while. But after five years, it turned into the long poem. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was not a poem a day. Uh, I remember Bill's example and that wonderful line that you quoted. And Bill would work every morning. Not writing for my law, he'd do revisions and so on. But then he never touched it again. And Bill had no idea which were the good ones and which weren't. He always relied on other people. And for a while, he was kind of editor for him when he was publishing with Harper and Rowe. Uh, he would send the manuscript to them knowing that they would send it to me. And, you know, first time I'd cut out half of them and send it back to Bill. And then he'd send me the ones which weren't quite so good, and you know, I'd take half of them. And finally, he sent me the bottom of the drawer, and then he had a good book. <laughs> uh, but he needed somebody to do that, and I said, get him was good. I like to write every day, and I have wanted to all my life. It was patched a couple of years ago when I couldn't write at all, which was absolutely horrible. But I love to. I like to write in the sense that, I, especially, I love to tinker. I don't like to write, I like to move on. And uh, my poems go extraordinarily, like some time. Toward the end, I may changing one word, but I don't know whether it's any good until I see it typed up. Uh, changing punctuation, changing line breaks, finding a way to extend a metaphor by taking a general road and making it specific. Uh, all sorts of things like that. 
I just sold a poem that I began, I think, in June of 2007. And uh, because I am so proud of all this stupid proviso, I count. And uh, this was 158th draft. <laughs> I'm not Greek to volunteer. Uh, but uh, it, it, uh, it pleases me to the shape finally take hold. Of course I have to abandon things because they never take hold. But uh, I like to spend my time uh, working on a number of poems at once. And some will be very recent, some will have been around for a month, some will have been around for a year, uh, in a different states, so you, you encounter different kinds of writing. And it all be, uh, begins with the uh, the love of writing itself, and the desire to make something that has a shape that uh, people will love. That's enough. <laughs> well, I have a very conflicted relationship with the writing. Um, there, I, there are many things about it that I, I love the notebooks, I love my pen, I love what David calls the physical activity of writing. I love the mental preparation. I hate the very beginning <laughs> of any particular project. I really suffer through that. But once I'm inside my subject, if you will, then I feel enormously self-satisfied. Um, and I don't like it to be over. And I like the vision. Um, but the beginning is, is, is hard for me. And I always think, maybe I can quit now. Maybe I've done enough books. Maybe if I did one more book, then it would be one book too many. And that would just destroy everything that came before it. You know, it just, you know. Um, so it's, it's never going to be a settled thing for me. Um, but being inside the subject is very, very, very pleasing. And I certainly can't account for the time when I do it. I just, I can't account for a single day in my life, in fact. Um, but I know that you don't wait for, um, what, you know, the muse. I mean, that, like Diego Rivera said, inspiration is for amateurs. If I waited for that, it would be, you know, it would really would be futile. Um, so I, I turned to at it. Um, it goes in the Dickens novel.
question is, I think, uh, what kind of responsibility do poets have to document the world uh, and to uh, pass it on to the future, right? Who would, who would like to start with this? I can mom answer. <laughs> I don't think that I feel a responsibility for uh, information or direction that will affect the, uh, the history of the world or the, uh, perhaps um, I, I feel a responsibility to um, make the poem emotionally true and make it as emotionally complex as people really are. One thing I've often said about poetry, one thing that distinguishes distinguish it as an art from other arts is the representation of, of the simultaneity of contradictory feelings. And I think you don't understand yourself, you don't understand what you do, you don't right away anyway, but you never understand yourself until you feel the pulling back and forth, the north and the south together within the same point. And the other thing I want to do is, uh, it's, it's, it's not done for the sake of other people. Uh, really. I want to make something that has a beautiful sound. Now, if other people think it's beautiful and enjoy it, fine, it's for other people. But somehow that seems my, this, my, my primary desire, my doorway into poetry is the sound of medicine first, and a lot of the revision that I do uh, is uh, to, to do with sound and so on. The, but that is uh, a, a personal um, <coughs> necessity, which I think is true of most of the poems, poets whom I love. Uh, but uh, that's one of the reasons, from my case, is I can't do it immediately because I have to revise so much. I wanted to say one further thing. I revise so much, and I know and I resent it that some poets write well at one draft. <laughs> I, once I sat in my living room with Robert Creeley, who took up a piece of paper and 
wrote a poem as fast as his hand could move, more or less. And it wasn't one of Creeley's best poems, but it sounded like Creeley. It had his characteristic terms. It was pretty good. I admired it as much as I resented it. Uh, Don told me an anecdote about how uh, when he and John Ashbery were in college at, at Harvard uh, and they were both on the literary magazine, The, the Advocate, uh, they had a page uh, room for one more poem. And Ashbery said, oh, excuse my, uh, excused himself and, and came back about 10 minutes later with, with a poem. And uh, Don said, uh, you admit it, you wrote that poem in, in 10 minutes. Yes, but, and uh, a few years ago they met again, and, and uh, Don said, "Do you remember the time you wrote uh, uh, that poem in ten minutes with the advocate?" And Ashbury said, "Yes, it took me longer than in those days." About <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 Wallace Stevens in his book *The Necessary Angel* has a a line about the social responsibility of the poet. He says the poet ha has none. And um, I think it's important to resist uh, pressure um, to, to subordinate poetry to some other end, like a political end. Because a, a poem, no matter how good, isn't going to stop the, the war. And, um, and often poetry that attempts to be political in an overt way uh, turns out to be very mediocre poetry. Um, so I believe in the freedom of the poet to write about anything. Uh, but that said, I, I think we do have an obligation to keep poetry itself alive and to keep alive everything that poetry represents and everything that goes into poetry, um, whether that means uh, beauty or art or the language. And, and I think if we succeed in, in, as poets, then we can't help illuminating our world for future generations. It's uh, sort of fruitless now to, to predict which poets will be read 50 years from now or 100 years from now. That's out of our control. But if you write really beautiful poems, uh, I think they will say a great deal, even if the poems are, are quite private in, in a way. I mean, we read Emily Dickinson's poetry today. Uh, she has many more readers now than she did in her lifetime course, since she only had two readers in her <laughs> lifetime. And her, her poems don't seem to engage with the world outside, but uh, it's a rare person who reads Emily Dickinson and doesn't derive from it some uh, spiritual quality, some aesthetic quality, or some metaphysical quality, something that stimulates thought and helps us to lead our lives. question um, hinges on this question of time and the future of other generations, I think. And in an immediate age when every, everything seems to be now and instant, um, I think it would be a very foolish point to recognize that he was, or she was involved in something um, that, it, that it's sometimes outside
All right. What else? Yes. I'm not going to try and summarize that. <laughs> in, in essence, it is uh, either do or do not write about blue bonnets. Uh, um, well, the, the, the questioner mentioned uh, Billy Collins uh, having edited the Best American Poetry in, in 2006, and, uh, and that he said uh, at one point that uh, he had so many poems to peruse that he uh, decided that he would not read any poem that mentioned uh, blue bonnets, I guess. And uh, I, I think he was being a little witty. I mean, uh, that, uh, uh, that's the, his sort of wry uh, humor. But um, you mentioned the phrase, the great American poem. And amusingly enough, um, Billy had a very good poem last year in the Virginia Quarterly Review called The Great American Poem. And um, it's, it's a very good poem. And uh, it's about how American poetry today is much more interesting than American fiction, which uh, is such a self-evident proposition that I needn't uh, <coughs> uh, uh, elaborate uh, on it very much. But um, someone was pointing out that if you wanted to get, you also mentioned the New Yorker magazine, which uh, is a magazine one would like to have one's poems in because a lot of people read it. You have a big circulation, and they pay. Uh, rather well. Uh, however, um, sometimes it seems as though to have a poem accepted for the New Yorker, you need to have the, uh, the word cupped as a verb. <laughs> which is a dead metaphor. Which is a very dead metaphor, or, or cradled. Uh, 
as a verb. <laughs> and I, it's very hard to bring yourself to the point of, of putting in cupped. <laughs> in, in, just in order to get into the New York. Also, your chances are improved if you put a body of water into a poem. Uh, Charles Bernstein made a study of uh, one year um, out of 52 issues of the New Yorker, 48 had poems that had, had water in them. So, you know, a word to the wise. <laughs> I think you can write about anything. I think it's harder to write a good poem about God than it is about three oranges. Uh, but uh, maybe the poem about God will be a greater poem. Maybe not. Uh, I don't see why one would not want to write about whatever it is that one really feels strongly about. Uh, and no one should tell anyone else not to write uh, on, a, on a subject. No one should tell anyone else not to write a book. It's very hard work to write a book. But if you want to do it, that's a great thing to do. It's probably the hardest thing I've ever done is write a book, uh, a, a nonfiction book. I've written a number of nonfiction books. I'm keeping to uh, talking because no, no one else yeah. is believing. Ah. <laughs> Here, here's another man who writes books. Uh, well, I have to step uh, perhaps to the defense of uh, my friend Paul Muldoon, who recently became the um, poetry editor of the New Yorker. <laughs> oh, th th that was a pre Muldoon yes, analysis. He, Um, I would say 
You're asking about the, the relationship between poets and readers, is that right? Okay. And and you also uh, wonder whether there's a difference between America and Britain along those along those lines. Okay. Well we have Americans and Britons on the panel, so. Not even close. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> 
into its own vision of what the country could be. And in what we call the troubles of the North, certainly poets and uh, the playwright Brownfield exercised uh, an influence that had to do with contributing to the healthy, uh, the healthier situation there. Um, you can you can publish a poem in the Irish Times on Saturday with confidence that you know it's a lot of the country will read it. And ever been and 
forgive me, I mean, in any decade, in any time, most poetry published is rotten. And uh, I'm not talking about, I'm talking sheerly about quantity, with the words I just told you. But uh, I think there's been a, a change in the audience. Since I was, uh, oh, in college, uh, the number of books published in any year has multiplied so many times. But I think that there used to be something more like the general reader than the common reader than there is now. And I think perhaps there's more of the common reader in Britain than there is in America. There are uh, more, there was a Saturday Review of Literature, Harper's published poems. Now, the New Yorker does, and uh, the, uh, well, the New Republic uh, publishes a few, Harper's stopped, and so on. I think that uh, poetry has become more uh, limited to uh, the people who love it. And I mean to say that this is sort of satirical sounding, but everybody knows in the publishing world that there's the sci-fi gang. And there is the, uh, uh, there used to be the Western, the, the mystery story. Particular, uh, people read particular things. There's a vampire crowd and so on. <laughs> and it, it is, seems to me possibly more nearly true that there is the poetry crowd, which is infinitely larger than it used to be, but that the uh, person who reads poetry and fiction and history, that this population is small. Well, uh, for, first of all, I'd, I'd like to express my admiration for Paul Muldoon and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the fact is that Paul edited the uh, Best American Poetry of 2005, the, the year before Billy uh, did. And Paul is one of the uh, very few poets uh, who has a reputation on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, there aren't that many who travel well, in, in a sense, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is lamentable. Um, I don't know that all poets agree that it's a very important thing to reach a wider audience. Um, uh, I do. I, I, I think that it's possible to, uh, um, uh, to connect poetry with people and, and to tackle certain problems. You know, poets find that people are intimidated by poetry, for example. And that's a problem that's uh, soluble, I think. Um, and um, also, as a practical matter of publishing, uh, you, if you go into a bookstore, uh, that banishing... Uh, breed of, of shop, poetry is usually in some corner in the back that, you know, the light bulb doesn't work. Um, so from the point of view of trying to get uh, poetry to the people, you, you want to get poetry out of that ghetto in the back of the shop and, and um, near the cash register. Um, so you, you really need to... Uh, be imaginative in your in the way you publish. The uh, best American poetry turned out to be a successful enterprise. I think in part because of the of the way we uh, of the apparatus. As the poets comment on their poems, and we list what magazines uh, the poems came from, and uh, the names of the editors, their addresses. You could subscribe or submit poems to them. Um, the editor writes an introduction forbidding the use of certain words each year. <laughs> And, and, and so on. Um, uh, but I, I, I do believe that we have an audience that's 
even greater potentially than the audience that we, we do reach. Um, bestseller lists are, are very curious things. Um, the, the fact is that Allen Ginsberg, uh, for example, his book Howl has probably sold a million copies. Um, and uh, there must be dozens of other examples in the, the the Times and, and other, others who, you know, judge these things or quantify these things never take into account the longevity of certain books. And uh, T.S. Eliot's collected poems, um, for example, has never gone out of style. Um, uh, but we can't quantify that because bestseller lists are based on a week-to-week -week, uh, uh, set of receipts. In, in, anyway, I, I, I do think the uh, um, editing an anthology or a magazine is a very interesting task because you uh, are able to introduce new poets, for example, and they may ride the coattails of the more famous poets. Um, and, uh, and, and also you can serve a, a subject. Uh, if you think, as I do, that erotic poems, that, that poets, young poets in particular, are writing with great freedom and candor about erotic subjects. You, you can devote an anthology to that subject and, uh, uh, and, and you know, hope to find a, a readership, not only for the, uh, uh, for the new poets, but for whatever tradition there has been of erotic poetry in America, despite its Puritan uh, origins. But anyway, Don, you wanted to add. I'm just going to add another. It, it sold 100,000 copies in a short time. And look at the numbers that allowed the paperback bestseller to get on the bestseller list, and you'd never see it. And this is simply what David said, just another name. And Billy, Billy Collins, for oh, that Billy. matter. Yeah. Billy Collins sells a lot of copies. And, uh, and you can really tell when a poet has succeeded in the marketplace, because then suddenly there's a lot of criticism of that poet among the, from the other poets. So you know that Billy Collins has really succeeded because he's very high on the resentment index. <laughs> Robert Pinsky also. You're, you're entitled to criticize Robert Pinsky for some reason. So you know that he's been very successful. I think we have time for one more question. Yes. question has to do with the, uh, the sales of the Best American Poetry uh, series. You know, when, when you go to uh, uh, an interview school, they tell you that if you get a question that you don't want to answer, that you don't answer it. You, and the way to do that is to say, well, that's a really good question. <laughs> and then you, you say, but um, before I get to it, isn't it exciting that our president is an author, Barack Obama, and in fact, he, he's, uh, there was just an article about Obama and, and the sales of his, uh, his first book, The Autobiography. He, he makes about a quarter of a million dollars, and, and the, he's wondering now whether to devote the uh, royalties to uh, charity or not. Uh, but the, the idea that the president is an author <laughs> is really exciting, I think. Um, it's very hard to imagine his immediate predecessor embarking on the task of writing a, a book. Um, um, 
So I find that to be uh, really noteworthy. Really that's well, that settles it, doesn't it? Uh, I'm sure we could go on for a long time, and it would be nice to do so. But we have uh, gotten to the end of this hour. Uh, I hope that uh, all of you who really wanted to ask questions have gotten them in. But if you haven't, these people are going to be around for uh, a while and you can uh, stop them in the halls uh, and ask them the questions that you didn't get a chance to ask uh, right now. Hope to see you tonight for the reading and thanks for coming this afternoon.